Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by Johnsonville Foods, Swine Robotics, SwineWeb.com, and Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hoghearth. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're meeting with Dr. Brad Frecking to talk about the importance of technology and communication when facing adversity. How are you doing today, Brad? Good, Matthew. Yourself? Doing well. When we look at this past year, it's been overwhelming and interesting all at the same time. And I'd love just to start, though, by talking about your background, your introduction to agriculture and the beginnings of New Fashion Pork. Sure, Matthew. Um, Born and raised on a small family farm, 200 sows for to finish um, here in Jackson County, 600 row crop, few cattle up. You know, both myself and my wife, Meg, were both from Jackson County and we're able to ultimately land here and set up our business. But, um, you know, we're we're a product of the 1980s farm ag depression. So, so staying at home was not an option. I mean, there, there, there's just no money being made in agriculture. So, so I ended up going on to SSU uh, pre-vet, uh, finished there, and then got my degree, veterinary degree out of the University of Minnesota in 94 and made, got an ag business out of SSU and then came up to Minnesota. We married and she worked for PigChamp at the University of Minnesota. So, so she is very, um, and that's been really instrumental in her, in her contribution to NFP because, you know, that grew into the information system. She runs IT and all the data production for the company. So, so we started NFP in 94, straight out of vet school, presented with an opportunity from two other veterinarians. And um, the original model was bringing wean pigs out of Ontario, Canada. Um, bringing them from a high feed cost, poor market environment to a low feed cost market access environment. And so we started with 50,000 pigs a year in 1994, um, did a horrible job <laughs> with the startup, um, you know, as your classical bootstrap, you know, undercapitalized, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's just <laughs> myself, my sister. And, uh, <laughs> You know, often I, I was everything, service manager, mark the pigs, you know, so it was really boots on the ground. And and what had happened to Matthew um, in downturn of 98, uh, we started making acquisitions. So we grew the company by acquiring um, kind of failed sow farms um, from South Dakota to Wyoming to Illinois, Indiana. And that's really why we're geographically diverse. Um, with our sow production, but it turned out to truthfully to service very well because those sows ended up being in pretty high health environments. Mm. So, so the platform today, you know, approximately 60,000 sows, sows are on the fringe. All the pigs come back Southern Minnesota, Northern, North Central Iowa. 
where feed mills are at. And then, um, um, so we, we manufacture almost all of our feed except for the sows on the fringe. And then probably the other big aspect, um, two important points, uh, we own a lot of uh, all the sow assets, but the majority of the finishing assets too. So in 2003, got together with Hanover Christensen's Dave Eichelberger, uh, decided to pursue integration, and we started building the plant in St. Joe in 2004, went operational on January 6th. Um, of 2000 or January 1st, 2006. And um, then we hit the, the corn deal, ethanol of 2008. And, uh, and the issue that Triumph guys had during that time period was it, it took a lot of our working capital to start that plant up because we funded the startup or the startup losses out of working capital from the producers. So when 0809 hit, you know, we didn't quite have the balance sheets because we just got done funding that startup. And I still remember um, when we paid off all the operating debt at St. Joe is like April of 2008. And I'm like, man, we need some distributions coming out. And uh, but but as that experience um, of 0809, where we did kind of a course correction with our macro business model, and we started acquiring farmland. Um, so today, today we have um, about sixteen thousand acres domestically, and they're tied with the with the finishing assets. So, so the mm. nutrient source is pig manure. So, so it's a very um, uh, if you think about it, it, it's a very efficient, holistic. Um, sustainable approach because you know the pigs produce the manure, the manure feeds the corn crop, corn crop goes to the feed mill, feed goes to the pigs to produce the manure. So, so when you look at our you know our our footprint or sustainability, I mean it's a phenomenal model. You know, which a little bit of a tangent. I mean we're all over carbon credits and that's coming. Yep. And if you look at our system, um, you know I think. We're probably generating probably two tons per acre per year with our production practices, and uh, those credits will probably get marketed at about thirty bucks. So it's just kind of another revenue stream. But but that also um, so we we're buying land. Land got too expensive. We ended up down in Belize, and uh, we have thirty thousand acres in Belize that's um, an integrated sugar mill. So we do sugar cane along with edible corn, edible beans, and uh, dab a little bit in shrimp down there. So, so that's um, I'm just kind of walking you through timelines. Um, and then um, 2014, 15, we did the dailies acquisition 50/50 with Seaboard. So that another value-added further process and integration for our bellies. And um, I. Th- I think in 2016, 17, we got going with Sioux City plant. Okay. So today, when you look at Seaboard Triumph, you know, there's three harvest plants at about 20,000 per day. And then there's three bacon facilities that integrate about 35% of our bellies. So that's kind of a really big picture, Matthew. So when you think startup, you call it startup with the with getting everything going and the challenges that come with that. Can you remember some of the more vulnerable times and moments that you, you had in that process where, where things did get really tough and 
Oh yeah. I mean, challenges were? you know, so, and you'll laugh about this, Matthew. So, so Dr. Barry Wiseman, um, was getting his PhD at the university of Minnesota. And, um, so I ended up meeting Barry and doing all his field work, uh, for his PhD thesis study. Well, is, is that medicated early weaning? And so we did all that initial groundwork of, hey, you can mix 10 different sources, follow this protocol, wean them these days, and you'll get rid of all these diseases. Well, that's probably the biggest disservice we ever did to the industry was educating people on that because then they thought they could commingle pigs. And so when I think about startup of NFP, I mean, we're commingling four different sources. So So the health challenges, I, I mean, undercapitalization, poor performance, I mean, it was just bad. And so, yeah, been there, seen it, done it. <laughs> yeah, we had somebody in the audience last week at Iowa Swine Day ask, uh, so do you still get pigs from Canada? And you're like, nope, that wasn't necessarily <laughs> a good idea. <laughs> so no, it, it kind of ran its course. Uh, I think uh, we did that for about four years and then we got... Got some other pig sources lined up, but then uh, that's when we made our first acquisition of sows was in 1998 when sows were eight cents and we bought the 8,000 sows in Wyoming. So when it comes to the success of New Fashion Port, do you attribute most of that success to internal operation management or diversity of operations as a whole? I know know it's both in a lot of ways, but which one do you think is most important? Oh, internal ops. Um, it, it, there's no doubt about it. Um, it it's, it's information, you know, it, it's, um, you know, when I think about success, it's information systems that allows the right decision-making to educate the people on what and how to do it. You know, it's kind of those three steps, people and processes, you know, information systems, processes, people, and you got to tie those three together they got to have the right information to execute their job accordingly. Where do you think we're missing missing the bar as an industry around around those three things? You know, um, so so it, 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 every system is different. Um, I, I think the biggest when when I think about it macroly, Matthew, uh, probably the biggest challenge that the industry has as a whole is a lot of fixed assets are improperly built. Um, they're either in the wrong location, wrong size, you know, so there's probably 30 to 40% of the infrastructure out there today on the South side, that's either the wrong size or wrong location. So it either forces, it forces bad decision-making, i.e. I got to commingle pigs or I'm in a geographical setting that I can't get my herd health right. Right. So, and then it wasn't always everybody's choice either. I mean, yeah, when so, I grew yeah. up, it was 8,000 sows and we had 30, 40 finishers. And it's like, you, you build it when it we built it and it was healthy. And then you get surrounded <laughs> by other groups and at nobody's fault. It's just sooner or later areas become overly. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, you know, you could look at there's spots, in Iowa that one time had very little pigs and now have a ton of pigs and you know and thank god southern Iowa you can't find water I mean that's where we have a sow farm so no other sows come in because you have limited access to water but 
But if I look at our challenge today, Matthew, um, it's lateral breaks in the growing herd. And, um, you know, so we're bringing in PERS myconative pigs and they're cruising through nurseries and they get hit laterally and all of a sudden you have double digit mortalities. And, um, you know, so it's uh, this one for, for PERS is the real deal. And um, it's, it's very difficult to manage. So when talking about importance of technology and communication when facing adversity, uh, you've really faced two types of adversity as a producer in Southern Minnesota, and that, that's COVID, but then also PERS. So I don't want to forget PERS and all of this and, yeah. and what you guys have been facing there. But starting with early last year, what were some of the frustrations or realizations around how we manage companies internally around adversity and or how as a government we handle adversity or as a healthcare system? I mean, would you talk through kind of the process that you went through and some of the things you learned and some of the things that, that frustrated you or surprised you as we went through COVID? Yeah. So, Matthew, um, I think where I'll start is... Um, the pre-plant experience, um, you know, so we were watching COVID, you know, being trained as a doctor, as putting out information to the team, hey, here's what I'm seeing, here's what I'm thinking about it. But you're still, there's still a, a sense of fear with it in what I'd call February, March, because, you know, horrific mortality rates coming out of the East Coast, you know, but then you find out, the magnitude of mismanagement with COVID patients and putting positives in nursing homes and, you know, how much you know, that exacerbated the fatality rate. But, but really where, where I started to question it is um, when we tested our plant. And so we had our first COVID positive on a Monday and by the following Monday, through the state of Missouri and Chris Chin and the governor and director of health, they were able to facilitate all the testing materials to do an entire plant testing uh, of, the, of our workforce. And with that, um, what the shocker that came out of that was um, 80% asymptomatic. So we out of the 2,500 tested, 500 were positive, but only about a hundred were actually clinical presentation of, you know, flu cold like symptoms and 400 were like, didn't even know I had it. And then that data coalesced with the JBS data, you know, very simple, was similar that 80% asymptomatic rate. There's a couple of prisons that did mass testing. Um, there's a couple of warships that did the same thing. And it all came into that number, you know, somewhere 70, 80% asymptomatic. And um, so, so what that did, my, my view of the virus was totally different at that point in time um, because the fatality rates as being reported were significantly skewed, you know, because as against people tested positive, well, if you got 80% asymptomatic rate, take that number times four, five, six, and that's the true, true infection. And the, then you take that is your dominator, denominator against the mortality. Um, so for healthy working people, 
you know, I do want to put that qualifier around it for healthy yeah. people. And if you think about people that work in our plants, you know, that that's pretty rigorous work. And so it, as a rule of thumb, it's going to be a pretty healthy population because uh, of the work they got to do every day. And so, so we're a little bit unique and we probably have in a macro sense, Matthew, a healthier population than a lot of workforces out there. So I, I do want to qualify that and not downplay the risk of the virus, but understanding the risk and your profile and where those risks are. And so, so that's what we learned. Um, you know, so certain state, and it, it was by state and by county, because these health ordinances in your plants are controlled at the county level. Now, okay. the beauty about the state of Missouri, what the governor did said, no, we're not gonna allow little Nazis out here in every county. I'm going to control it at state level. So, so you strip that authority away from the county. And so we worked at state and that's why we, we were able to manage through it in Missouri, unlike you know these plants like Worthington down the road here, the plants who falls, I mean that they were down for weeks on end. Yeah, and, and I remember going over to Worthington and meeting the governor, you know, and they're having a press op about JBS, and you know I pinned him down and cornered him, said, "Hey, you know, you got to be thinking about this asymptomatic rate and what's going on and." You know, we got a lovely Democratic governor, so he kind of threw that out the window and, you know, it was about power and control and those type of things. But but in my mind, where the ultimate failure really lies is a, a lack of education on part of CDC and NIH, you know, on whether it's asymptomatic rate, the, the populate, population profiles, who's really at risk you know, what the fatality rates are within individual categories. And, um, you know, here we had a perfect case study to do follow-ups, sample sizes, et cetera, et cetera. And there's nothing there. Mm -hmm. So didn't you even say that the way testing was done early on was a little bit too, too sensitive as well? well I, I mean, PCRs, you got to understand PCRs can pick up minutia of DNA or an RNA and uh, tiny, tiny amounts. So, so basically what everybody's understanding today is uh, there's a tremendous amount of false positives associated with um, the, the PCR tests. And I shouldn't say false positives may be the wrong term. Yes, they picked up DNA or they picked up the DNA, but they're asymptomatic or is dead virus. And what they should have been doing is quantifying cycle times and saying, hey, if, if I'm at cycle time 25 or below, you're infectious or, or we, we predict that you're infectious, so you should quarantine. But if you got a cycle time 33 and it's all dead virus, you know, that they didn't do that. So, so that's why, that's why you know, either the asymptomatic rate is super high at 80% or, you know, there's just dead virus within their nostrils. And we don't know if that's fragments of dead viruses or, or virus that the individual actually cleared and is expelling. You know, we, we don't know that. So in this scenario, you have all these people working yeah. 
with you for you. And you have a much more educated perspective on what's going on than many individuals. But they're still sitting in their living rooms listening to the news and hearing <laughs> all this scary stuff. How do you lead through something like this when you have so many people on your team? Well, I mean, so so there's a couple different types of teams that we're dealing with. Uh, we got a, our internal team here at NFP, about 450 team members. And then then we got the entire plant production force, which, you know, was, was close to 10,000. So, so you got multiple different teams in different environments. You know, the plants were, were pretty political by state. Um, so your state dynamics were really important on how you worked at the plant level. And then you had um, the CDC guidance at the plant level and, and, um, you know, that was changing on a regular basis. And it took a lot of education with CDC, uh, working back and forth on what was practical, what's real. Probably the biggest thing, Matthew, they're trying to blame the plants as, you know, this where people were getting the virus. And thank God we were able to educate. No, it's not coming from the plants. It's the community they're in and they're bringing it to the plant. Mm -hmm. So that was, there's a lot of battles there um, initially. Um, You know, I I do feel significantly for the people at the plant level because, you know, when we did that mass testing, all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, St. Joe, if you work at Tramp Foods, you know, they almost were like wanting to refuse our employees' services. You know, so there's a, a very negative stigmatism that came with that testing, which um, for our employees in the community left a really bad taste in our mouth because they didn't understand the asymptomatic component. Yeah, we had a lot of people test positive, but they didn't realize 80% of them were clinically through it or, you know, free of the virus, you know, and that was a that's a CDC NIH failure of education. So um, now within the company, um, we don't have large workforces in any one unit. Um, the largest would be 6,000 sows, 20 employees. You know, so I just put out a lot of education about, hey, you know, if you get it, you know, you know, I was texting with everyone in our company that got it every day while they had it. You know, just keep an eye on them, how you feeling, keep an eye on your blood O2, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we probably had, I'm guessing, half our workforce experienced it at one point. Um, and zero hospitalizations, you know, none of that. But it, but the problem with COVID and the other lack of education on national level was the people that really crashed from it, their blood O2 dropped and mm. they didn't feel yep. it. And it was kind of too late by the time they got to the hospital because the, their blood oxygen got so low, it's hard to bring them back. So, so yeah, everything was kind of micromanaged, macro, but micromanaged. Gotcha. Yeah. So I think kind of spinning on that, I think there's this fun conversation to have here and it, uh, it's definitely going to involve politics because it's been such a big part of this. When we look at 
the history of the swine industry, we have dealt with coronaviruses. We have dealt with viral outbreaks and we have experience with herd management of these situations and on a government level, much less so. And it's been interesting to see how as let's, let's say you're a Republican and we as a country are developing a vaccine and there is a ton of excitement around how we are going to develop the vaccine. We are going to help vaccinate the world. We are going to get there. And there was a ton of opposition around from the Democrat side of it was going too fast. We weren't focusing on details enough. Election happens. Republicans think the vaccine isn't good anymore. And the Democrats think it's the best thing since slight bread. So we're dealing in this political landscape where it's Mm -hmm. like, what? (laughs) No, I mean, it's truly unfortunate that a national crisis had to become that political. Right. But when you look at some root causes, all you got to do is go through Fauci's track record. You know, mass bad, mass good now. Oh, by the way, do three of them. Yeah. You know, it's just idiotic. And and big tech didn't help because they go and scrub all the historical data. So so back in April, when they started talking about masks, you're able to go on the Internet and find studies from 0809. And, you know, those that the pre-COVID studies, and they'll all tell you that masks are not effective with viruses. Now, why do surgeons worm? Why do dental hygienists worm? It's to prevent oral fluids from getting in your nose, mouth, or eyes, you know, bloods, that type of deal. So, so yeah, a mask will help if I'm sneezing, coughing. But in, in the era of COVID, if you're sneezing and coughing, you probably should be in isolation quarantine, you know, not out walking around. So it's like, True. you know, and if you want to wear a mask, you know, it's N95. You know, the true masks that we provide all our, our employees at, at the farm level. You know, if you want to protect yourself or, you know, others, I mean, wear that N95. But but another, another problem that society as a whole had, Matthew, was um, that our, our doctors, that there's a big difference between swine veterinarians and human doctors. And yes. Human doctors are about the individual and the, this population of herd health. I mean, they're, they're just never dealt with it. Don't understand it. I don't understand macro testing and what the results mean, you know, so we were as on a couple of different work groups with human doctors trying to educate them. And, um, you know, there's a lot of good work done. And I think because of that and a few other things, that's why South Dakota took the approach they did. You know, just hey, you know, I'm not gonna, we're not going to get draconian about this virus. You know, when you know ultimately we need to get to herd immunity. You know, let's protect those at risk. And but we know the truth about it on who it impacts and these preventative measures. Lockdowns don't work. They never have. Yeah, I mean, not to understate this, though, when you were working with doctors, you guys weren't just working with local doctors. Oh, no, no, no. These were, yeah, these were, you know, Samford Health, the whole work group and Samford, you know, as Southwest Minnesota, Northwest Iowa, all our big chunks, South Dakota. And I was on uh, Minnesota Department of Health working group, you know, pretty much till they stopped inviting me. (laughs) 
So, <laughs> <laughs> they didn't like what I had to say. So in this, in this conversation around adversity, I mean, we have, we have COVID and you touched on that really well. And then you have hers and you have prop 12 and you start to think about it. Pork producers are no strangers to adversity. Yeah. Why do you think it that as an industry, we seem to handle it pretty well? Well, if you think about it in its most macro sense, Matthew, um, if you're still in this industry, um, you're used to fighting those battles. Um, it's probably, in my mind, it's one of the toughest industries to be in um, just because whether it's herd health, political issues, Prop 12, you know, labor issues, feed costs, it, you know, and then take the variation of the market. You know, when, when you combine all those factors together, it's a very, very difficult industry to thrive or succeed in. And because, um, I mean, you're dealing with stuff every day. Um, you know, you got herd health issues coming at you at all points in time. It seems like we're always fighting on the political front. And today it's Prop 12, you know, previously is, you know, individual sow housing. You got the animal activists, then you got the government component. <laughs> it's, it's every day. So, What do you think is the number one characteristic of a great team when facing adversity? Um, it, it, so... Maybe. It, it, that, that's a really broad question. It uh, is. It, you know, and you can look at, um, well, the talk Chad and I gave at Iowa Swine Days, um, it, it, different companies handled COVID differently with pig flows, you know, and and different companies handled their their office environment differently. You know, we, we stayed wide open, Matthew. I mean, I didn't, we, we were deemed essential. And mm -hmm. if our employees are going into those barns every day, everybody's coming to this office every day. You know, that's the attitude we took. So we stayed here to support the team members out in the field trying to execute on a daily basis. And so I, I think just mentally how he approached it. Um, and, you know, leadership starts at top. So, so if we would abandon the team by shutting down our office. I mean, what's that say to our team members? You know, so, so that's how we looked at it. I mean, so, we were right there with them. So is it a lot of nonverbal and verbal communication is communication. Oh, it's, it's absolutely actions. I mean, so, so we didn't change one thing. I, I mean, we just, we were deemed essential and we just kept plugging away. And then, then once um, we did our mass testing at the plant level, I knew the how low risk this virus was, i.e. more of a common flu or, you know, common cold with a healthy working population. And I'm like, okay, we're done. I mean, we're going to muscle through this. We understand who's at risk. So, so we did, you know, we took people that risk population you know, moved them outside, gave them different tasks, you know, et cetera. But um, the rest of the population just kept going. So to kind of wrap things up, what would be a golden nugget that you'd leave with listeners? Some life lesson that, that you think everybody should hear? 
Well, I mean, in any entity, everybody looks to the top leadership and they, they, they flow from that. Their energy comes from that. So whatever your actions are, expect your people underneath you to be following your actions. You know, so in the case of COVID, um, I got some people walking by, sorry, Matthew. Uh, in the case of COVID, um, you know, if, if you went and hid and hunkered down, you know, your team saw that, you know, and they're like, okay, you know, why am I putting myself at risk every day? See where I'm going with that? So it was, it, do not underestimate that ever, that people are watching every step that's coming out of your leadership team. Gotcha. Well, hey, thank you for joining this episode of the Popular Pig Podcast. Brad, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on and we wish you the best going forward. Nope. Glad to do it, Matthew. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, Please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.